Welcome to Conversations in Coco, produced, edited, and hosted by Lauren Heineck. You are listening to a podcast episode available via my Substack platform, laurenontheweekend.substack.com. These are conversations that I'm having with industry peers, academics, professionals, agriculturalists, and game changers. This is an extension of the Well-Tempered podcast that I have ran since 2016. Please consider making a donation to support the creation of these episodes, which allows them to be listened to by all. And if you're in a position to offer another sort of donation, such as blocks of Kuberture chocolate or something that I can use to create recipes for this platform and blog, please get in touch with me and we can talk about what options are there. On social media, you'll find me on Twitter at weekendchocolate.com, weekendchocolate, and on Instagram, I'm at Lauren on the Weekend. Both of those, WKND. Thanks again for being here, and please enjoy today's chat with Professor Romy Burks. Thank you, Professor Romy Burks, for joining us today on a chat in Conversations in Coco. You are a professor of biology at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. Of course, you're going to be telling us more about you and your life. Firstly, though, I'd just like to dive into a little bit of the origin story of where cacao entered your life, or maybe how you are, as I like to say, bitten by the midge. Uh, Bitten by the midge is a good phrase. My origin story of how to get into cacao revolves around my job as a professor. When I first went to Southwestern and started teaching, I was teaching an upper level course about invertebrates, things like midges without backbones. And the book that I was using was very evolutionary driven, and it had a bunch of phylogenetic trees, which are just basically, you know, diagrams of how things are related to each other. You know, what are the common things between worms and insects? Well, they're both segmented. You know, how important is that? my students really didn't have a good idea of what that type of thinking entailed. It was not going well, I guess is the the take home. I had this great epiphany in a shower and I said, oh, I need to figure out some other way for them to, you know, understand this. And so I said, oh, well, I'm going to get some, and I called them chocolate bars at the time. They're not chocolate bars. They're candy bars. Hershey's, Mars, M&M's, all versions, peanut butter cups, et cetera. And I created this exercise where if you look at the outside of a candy wrapper, it may change, you know, depending on whether it's Halloween or Christmas or Easter, the color of the packaging may change, right? There may be a new flavor or variety. You can't discern a lot from the outside of the package biologically. That's air quotes for those that are on the uh, audio here. But what you can do is is argue that that is what is termed phenotypically plastic. It it changes, you know, per the environment and is not rooted in the genetics. But if you open the candy bar and you dissect it, uh, the stuff on the inside is what matters. In other words, the, the genetics. There is a way in which you can classify organisms using what is called cladistics, which says that it either has something or it doesn't. For example, you would pick a character 
a quality of the set of things you have in front of you, the chocolate bars, candy bars. And you would say, okay, well, do these have coconut? Yes, 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 no, 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 right? It either has coconut or it doesn't. But if you think about it, that could be, you know, a, a problem category coconut because it could be flakes of coconut. It could be coconut sugar. Like you want to be as specific as possible. Nuts would also be not a good category because you could have macadamia nuts, almonds. So you want to narrow something that is unique to that bar. So long story short is, is you can create a way to sort these things and say, okay, I think that everything started as a bar and later evolved to go into pieces like M&Ms. But it's equally plausible that M&Ms came together to make a bar. Each one just takes one step. So then you have to say, how do I decide which one is the more plausible path? And to do that, you then go to the historic record. For real biology, that's the fossil record, that's genetic databases, that's all of these things. For chocolate, it's a history timeline. So, right, you know that, that Hershey's was before M&M's. And so, you know, it's, it's, this is going to be the, the right configuration of that. I created this exercise, worked well, uh, I was happy with it, and I was encouraged to write it up for publication. I was doing that, and I spent that following summer in Belgium. Now we're getting to the chocolate, real chocolate. I worked with a colleague there. And he was kind of aghast at my impression of what chocolate was, right? Because Hershey's is not chocolate in Belgian terms. He was great and, and helped facilitate a, you know, real understanding of Belgian chocolate. Well, you know, chocolate's not Belgian either. It doesn't come from there. I didn't know that at the time. Effectively, I just started reading. And that was what opened the door to figure out that, oh, Belgian chocolate is you know, beans that have been brought to Belgium and then made, you know, in this way that Belgians like to make chocolate. French chocolate is, you know, the same thing. The idea that, that chocolate had an origin had no concept to me prior to starting to read. That is my entry. And then fortunately, my university has a first year seminar program that is meant to help prepare students for a college experience. And it can be taught on any topic. I ended up developing one, first teaching it in 2007 uh, on chocolate. And from there, it's just gone haywire. I love that connection. It's obviously something where students are entering an environment where they have a touch point that is something they can reference from a very young age and then apply that to their future profession and, and current learning. So that ultimately became your science of chocolate course. No, it became what I termed as chocolate have a dark side. So it's a broad seminar. So the students that you get in first year seminar are not all science, all art, all they're, they're a mix. And so the goal is really to make connections between the parts of the universities. Yes, it had some science, but it also has psychology. It also has education, literature, art, philosophy, whatever else I can, you know, have time to throw in there. What I call my first year seminar course is, is very much an, a broad interdisciplinary course that touches all aspects of economics, labor market, social justice is a core part of that class. As 
I've developed more knowledge and interest. I've created a class that meets the university standards for a science class. Like if this is the only science class you take, you can take the science of chocolate. And there we're spending more time on each of the scientific areas, biology, chemistry, neuroscience, physics, little engineering, but also teaching students, you know, how scientists think. If you look at a, a question or you want to create an experiment, you know, how do makers decide roasting times? Well, they do experiments, right? They may not be lab replicated and they're not, you know, maybe charting the results every day, but they do experiments. Experimentation is a way of knowing and thinking. That is a more central tenant in the science of chocolate course and also sort of really getting into more depth in terms of being able to look at a scientific paper and understand it, or at least figure out how to understand it, aspects of that. Those are the two versions of the classes that I currently teach. And then in fall 2022, then we will take some Southwestern students to London, where we have a partnership with IES, and I will teach a chocolate covered London course, which will be more slanted toward economics and business and history. So sort of the comparison of the rise of industrialization and market labor and colonialism and all of the aspects that, that go into that, along with looking at this emergence of craft chocolate in a different cultural context, similar, but still different. It's seemingly never ending the different routes that you can choose to align in, in parallel to chocolate. And I think that's what keeps so many of us engaged. I'm really almost jealous of these students that have an opportunity at, at that time frame to receive that message and make that context. Because I think for many of us in the industry, it's only after, yes, you start reading. We can talk about education and access a little bit later on and how it is difficult to often know what the most current areas of science are paywalls or because of like the way that the structure has been between big industry and academia and the little us down below who are, are trying our best. One thing in COVID world as a scientist, I mean, I'm sitting back and I'm literally marveling at how fast the science is moving and getting out there and getting peer reviewed and getting published. I mean, the rate at which this is occurring is phenomenal unparalleled kind of production for good reason. But when you open a scientific paper published in now 2022, you know, that work was probably done a year ago, two years ago, who knows? And it's been in peer review for, you know, months and people have to respond and you have to send it back and it goes back, you know, back and forth. So that current science for, you know, even published in the current year may not be that current, right? Where you're really getting the most current science is probably going to meetings, right? Where people are presenting their ongoing work. And so you get a sense of, okay, this is what's ongoing. Now I go to those meetings for my regular research on snails and ecology. I don't go to the science chocolate meetings or the American Botanical Association or those. So I'm not seeing that aspect of the science in real time. 
And so just understanding more about the process and how it's happening. And that's things that, you know, I have access to as a scientist or a person that works in a university or, you know, et cetera. And that doesn't trickle down to your average person. The people writing the articles are paying for them to be published, um, which is a weird, odd concept. There's a lot of inequity in there. And so some of the best science being done, you know, maybe in origin locations for cacao, maybe isn't getting published because there isn't the money to publish it. Yeah, there, there are a lot of social justice and equity issues associated with the research and science going on and who's paying for it. You know, once you get to the genetics, it gets quite pricey. Yes, all of those things are important to understand and discuss. And that's a conversation that, that I do have with my students in the science of chocolate class more in depth. Thank you for mentioning those. It's definitely great to have that said out loud and, and hopefully through other episodes and, and other sources and other conferences that those elements can be discussed further. I would say about my now going on six steady years in the industry, one of my frustrations is it feels like we're often touching on the same topics or themes and that there, again, it's not this urgency or there's not this pace or cadence where you see in, in other current events in the world where there is new ideas, new concepts. There's a lot of recycling. Yeah. We had just had a little conversation before we started recording that was touching on this area of, of crossover between your studies, your scholarship, your work, your passions. And you mentioned just briefly the idea of genetics. I don't think we have to tell this audience that genetics in cacao is very complicated, very complex, and very still to be discovered. We don't really have a lot to say about it, but knowing your work in biology, how have you come to further appreciate or to further investigate or to just kind of have a further grasp of, of how genetics in cacao works? There's a couple different levels that you're looking at in terms of genetics. One thing I think is just amazing biologically is the idea that individual species, right, make huge differences. So there are, you know, millions of species on the planet. We've named, you know, a fraction of those, and we don't know all of these things that all of these things are contributing, but we can take one species, the Abroma cacao, it's a single species. And what that means biologically will differ depending on who you talk to. There's an idea of a biological species concept that if two species can interbreed and produce fertile offspring, then they should not be separated. But really what has pushed the forefront of how we think about what a species is, is genetics. And understanding that there are a area of overlap between a group of individuals. So you could have a lot of intra within that population variation. But if that intra, if the within is smaller than the between different populations, the inter, then we could separate out those more clearly. So that is what cacao is struggling with, is that intra-specific variations. Is Criollo a real cluster? Yes. In the statistics that are, you know, generated from the DNA, yes. With this amount of certainty, we can say this one falls out. Does Forastero do that? No, right? It breaks up into all of these different clusters. What is Trinitario? Oh, even more things, right? More clusters. We only know very few in cacao 
in terms of, you know, putting a name on things. That's a thing that cacao struggles with, you know, what does this mean, right? In my regular life as a aquatic ecologist, I'm struggling with that in, you know, what is the snail? We have a group of snails that are called apple snails. They're basically the size of an apple for lack of a better description. However, they're incredibly diverse within the group of apple snails. There's over a hundred species of the genus, the category in which I study. And I want to be able to detect if one comes into the waterways. Can I detect one species? Can I detect many species? Is there hybridization going on? And so in one of the proudest accomplishments so far as a molecular aquatic ecologist is that we've demonstrated hybridization of two species of snails in the native range. And these are ones that become invasive elsewhere. So understanding what hybridization means genetically, I did on snails. And so when I read about it in cacao, I have a better understanding for what's going on. Using the nomenclature, understanding you know, the processes that are there, understanding that there are lots of variations in ways some people do things and you're like, oh, that's a different approach. Maybe I should try that. That you only can know, you know, how diverse something is with what you're comparing it against. We have these samples, but how many samples are we missing, right? And so when you look at these catalogs of the diversity of X country or X region, you want to say, oh, well, okay, how well did they sample? That's a question I ask myself in my regular work. So I think that being a scientist, particularly being an ecologist that is looking at the interactions between organisms and their environment and ecology is really centered on looking at the underlying mechanisms for determining diversity and distribution. I mean, that's what ecology does. You know, do predators play a big role? Does disease play a big role? How is climate factored in? So any kind of question that I might ask about my distribution of snails is asked in some way in thinking about the distribution of cacao. I don't necessarily separate I try to find the connections between the two things. Reading, reading one helps me understand the other and vice versa, I think, in terms of, of the literature. You're asking, you know, what is the importance of the species? So it is a single species. You're saying, you know, how diverse, even though it's a single species, humans are a single species, right? We're quite, you know, diverse. And how does that diversity then translate into whatever else you're interested in. That's where people are looking at the genome, the single entire representation of genetics of a particular individual. It might be an individual that belongs to this cluster. So that first genome was published, but that's one single individual, right? As you add more to it, and this is where your comment about propriety data, right? So these are big chocolate companies that are doing the research that are generating this massive amount of genetic data. Yes, some of it is publicly available, a select bit, but a whole lot of it is not for proprietary reasons. And what applications, you know, infer is, all right, could we understand, you know, the variation in this type of genetics and can that be 
turned up or turned down, depending on what it results in. So changes in DNA change RNA, which is important for making amino acids, and those amino acids make protein. So that's kind of the basic central dogma of biology. And then proteins do everything. Proteins build, they structure interactions, they are catalysts, enzymes are everything. So can you figure out how changing the DNA, right, will change the function of the protein? So can you make more antioxidants? Can you make cancer-fighting substances? Can you turn up, you know, the orange flavor? We're not anywhere close to near there yet. But that is what looking at the whole of the genetic material will get you compared to looking at kind of the clusters of these are the things that are related to each other and have this set of properties. There's layers that you're looking at in the genetics, whether it's saying, I want to be able to identify this. I want to be able to find its relatives or things similar to it. Or, you know, I want to be able to take its properties and then apply them. A lot of the cacao work is focused on that second level, on finding, you know, what's there and what it's related to, and the rise of genetics and genetic engineering modification, which is a additional step, is where that's going to go in the future. There's a part of me that's grateful we're not there yet, because I think what you're alluding to is this potential that could get out of control, where if certain individuals or conglomerations have that power, have that ability, have that market share, could then flood the market with some things that could be potentially uh, disastrous for people, planet, etc. But of course, I lament the idea that we just don't know that much. And particularly those of us who might be closely involved in the industry still feel that kind of lack of, of connection to what happens and, and what goes on. So I'll try to put these two um, areas together, which was on our outline. So we have what you described in a Northwest chocolate conference as subspecies clusters, and we maybe projected there could be hundreds of those. We're still- There are hundreds of okay, those. Okay, better said. We just have not sampled them or labeled them for public consumption, but based on similar other crop species and the rise of domesticated products, I mean, there are thousands of varieties of other things. I don't think cacao would be any different. Good point. I guess if we look at sort of that hub of cacao in the upper Amazon basin and even potatoes as an example, right? There's so many varieties of those. I'm glad you said that. And so- When we have what is a very naive, novice, perhaps, concept of genetics, how then do you think people who are day in, day out educating people or that bars are flying off the shelves with certain marketing terms or labeling, should we maybe approach the lexicon? It's a really good question as to what are the appropriate buzzwords or how well that, you know, things are labeled. So I do think that there's, you know, a number of terms floating throughout the industry that no one maybe agrees on exactly what they mean. I do like the work of the heirloom cacao preservation. An heirloom is something that is valued. It is not necessarily something that is particularly rare. It may not be rare, 
you know, I have this heirloom in my family and it's, you know, come down. Well, maybe other people have similar heirlooms in their family and those have been inherited over time. But this idea that that the sense of variety is valuable, the diversity on blank is valuable, I think is a message that I like coming from the heirloom preservation groups. If you can, you know, name these heirloom varieties, right, that we value them. They have a taste profile that we like. They're cultured in places that we appreciate, whatever gives that sort of designation. So I do think that that type of labeling where it has gone through some systematic process is useful. I would actually like to see that kind of rise more. Because that, again, is not, it's not based on what the genetics is. It's not based on whether it's a Criollo or a Forstero, which is a whole bunch of other things now. It's based on, it's this variety, whatever it is, and we value it. So I think that that idea and the idea that there are, you know, wild stocks that are out there, you know, wild cacao, the work that Louisa Abrams has done and also, uh, Castro Novo has kind of this heirloom, also wild cacao vibe going throughout. So I think that using those broader terms are most appropriate for understanding and also getting across the message that, you know, if you want everything the same all the time, buy a Hershey bar and eat it, right? Because it's going to be the same wherever you eat it. And it's because the beans are not special. They're just beans. The process is not special, right? So if you want special and you want variety, then think about the amount of diversity that is needed. So I think that that's one messaging that you could do with beans. I think in terms of all of the debates of, oh, this is pure Criollo and white beans, anything with taste is subject to interpretation. Is that the best bean out there? I don't know. Is it genetically distinct and unique from this other group? And what that means is it's had time to evolve a number of characteristics that make it, right, what you want to name it. And so do you like those characteristics? That is, you know, kind of the other value there. In terms of practicality, there's useful manners in naming varieties because different varieties are subject or have resistance to disease. That's important. I mean, for cacao farmers, you know, losing a third of your crop to disease is not an economically sustainable plan. You want good varieties, right, that have diversity that can withstand not only the diseases that are out there now, but the diseases that are going to be out there in the future. And I think that's a lesson we've kind of learned from COVID. Okay, well, we can deal with, you know, this one right now, but hey, we need to start thinking about, you know, down the road. And genetic diversity is the only thing that's going to save cacao from future threats, be it climate change, disease, pests, etc. Cultivating that aspect that diversity matters is, I think, where the genetics of cacao could make a stronger impact on the consumer without getting caught up on this is this variety from this valley. 
We're so far away from where wine is in geographical association. I expect many people, and this is maybe my skeptical or critical view, could point out France on a map. I'm not sure that they could do the same for Nicaragua or Colombia. There is a bias, there's a Eurocentric colonization framework on top of everything that is consumed with cacao. I think identifying the origin, the country, I think is, is great. I think once you kind of dial down the genetics from there, you're limiting your demographic in purchasing power because they don't know that the four regions of Peru, Pura and Cusco and are going to be different. Right. Right. So making those parallels. Chocolate is just so far behind other specialty foods that I think you have to elevate it as something special before you say it's super duper special because it comes from here. I like what you said about celebrating diversity in general, because I have felt that like when we create these levels, like this hierarchy of who or what or where is better. And then you ask people who are already at the margin or, you know, battling climate change or planning new crops or betting their life on something to spend their money on certain testing to know what their varieties are. And it turns out that, you know, whatever they get is not up to the Parker rating or, you know, whatever number or classification is established. They have a lot, right? I mean, it's not one variety on any particular farm. It's several varieties. One tree can have more than one variety on it. Grafting makes it possible to make the Frankenstein of cacao, little parts of this everywhere. And so, you know, to say that it's all pure, pure really means nothing genetically. I cringe often at those words and really try to think about what is the context in which it's being harvested. It's kind of like wild versus farmed salmon. What are you going to think about when you buy? Well, oh, wild salmon. Oh, it tastes better. Oh, I wonder why. Well, you know, there's reasons for that. What chocolate really has not done, I think, is find kind of parallels for talking to people. Wine is an obvious parallel. Same chemical kind of tastes and structures and compounds. But, you know, not everybody's a wine drinker. How do you take specialty chocolate and transform it into, okay, well, it's like this, that, or the other. Craft beer has done a good job. I think a little bit, you get those classes of different kinds of beers. You know, they're hoppy, weedy, fruity. They've done well to kind of describe, and you're just not there yet. We're still very much in this binary of like, it's, dark, it's dark milk, it's white, or it's inclusion. And again, to use your reference to the craft beer space where you have, it's a sour, it's a stout, it's an imperial, it's a IPA, is really another world. I do wonder how and, and when we'll get there, but I'm not even sure if at this point it is the most urgent space. Where do you think that knowing what is happening on a global scale knowing the direction we'd like to go, but also what challenges might face us, what would you additionally like to see? 
pests and diseases have been around for millennia, right? They're not new, relatively in the scientific world. Climate change, although again, climate obviously occurs over millennia, but the rate at which the climate is changing is unprecedented, you know, caused by people, humans. That is going to make gigantic differences in survivability and diversity of cacao. I think that a lot of the science moving forward is rightly focused on uh, water availability, transport mechanisms, resistance to drought, stress tolerance, because even maybe more than disease, the plants have had a long time, right, to go back and forth with disease. They haven't had as long time to go back and forth with massive climatic changes in terms of where people want to put their worries or their money or for development for the future of chocolate. I would say stress tolerant or water. Water is always the limiting factor. And as an aquatic ecologist, so I study freshwater, here we need to think about our freshwater you know, resources and how they're distributed and, you know, how precipitation changes and forests are becoming deserts and, you know, we're getting more and more dry areas. Plants are moving up higher in altitude. It's not quite Lord of the Rings tree marching towards Mordor or wherever, but large communities are showing shifts in distribution. And that's going to happen, I think, more and more with cacao or cacao is going to struggle in that way. And that's where understanding the whole genome, the whole package of cacao, just like they've done with disease and identified the long way of, you know, raising a clone and subjecting it to diseases and seeing which ones, you know, it's resistant to, that's the long way, right? You can model it genetically and say, oh, it has this piece that's resistant. That's a good one. This one doesn't have it. I think that's going to happen with drought. This is where the science can really make social inroads because, you know, if your trees are dying, you're not making any money. You're not making any money as a cacao farmer in general, but you're definitely not if you can't sustain your crop. We kind of glossed over a little earlier, but genetic engineering you know, genetic engineering is direct manipulation of a genome, like putting something in there. Well, if we discover a, a resistance, whether to disease or drought, and cultivating varieties that have this, that can make the difference in whether a community survives or not. I mean, so now you're talking human labor, human capital. It does, as with everything, have the potential to go awry or be taken over by multinational corporations that, you know, may not have the human capital at the forefront of their mind, but without that money and industry to move it forward, chicken, egg, rock hard place. I don't know what you, you, you described. You need that because otherwise cacao will become a crop that is not globally distributed as it is now because it will dry up. My next question was going to head in that direction because to be clear for those listening at this current moment, there are no GMO hybrids varieties of cacao. 
Correct. But of course, we have read the headlines that have said in the past that cacao could be extinct by such and such dates. Um, no, it's not going extinct. I would argue not either. But to your point, we might reach moments when there will be less of it, or we should ourselves as consumers consider eating less or changing our habits around it. And of course, those who are growing it have the free will to say, I'm not interested in participating with this crop any longer, or I can't. How do you look at what might be the, re the replacement of cacao, either on our end as, as consumers or as an industry, or even for producers? I think that that question is complicated as with all questions in cacao. Um, so, you know, are you talking about replacing cacao or are you talking about replacing chocolate? Because I think necessarily those are not one and the same thing. Our global understanding of chocolate is not really chocolated sugar in at least an American centric and, you know, Northern European centric mindset. It's still driven by sugar. Can you have chocolate flavorings that we can create and maintain this idea of chocolate as something we, you know, like to taste and consume? Yes, that's going to, I think, persist. I don't see the flavor of chocolate ever dissipating. You can try to mimic it. In terms of cacao, then you're talking about, okay, well, you know, how many beans are going to be available to make real chocolate bars? So now you're going to go to a real versus artificial situation. So something like vanilla, right? 99.9% .9 of vanilla products in the world are artificial vanilla because you can synthesize it relatively easily, right? Pure vanilla, true vanilla is rare. But value, you, you can taste the difference, right? You can taste the difference between natural vanilla and artificial vanilla, even though they're both vanilla. I think that that's where you could come with chocolate, right? You could have this substitute, but the real thing is always going to be better. So I would hope that we would learn more readily to value the real thing. I talked to my students about, so I posed them a question, it's kind of a philosophical question, but can chocolate save the rainforest or can the rainforest save chocolate? So if you look at it as can chocolate save the rainforest, rainforest devastation, terrible, horrible, whatever. Oh, it's way away from people's minds. Okay, we just lost an acre in Brazil. Okay, no problem. Because it's not, you know, right there. But if you take away my chocolate, oh, well, then I'm going to put up my money to save the rainforest. Can chocolate save the rainforest is, you know, kind of this idea that chocolate is a rainforest understory crop, right? You need rainforest to make chocolate. And then the flip side of that is, can the rainforest save chocolate is, well, the rainforest is where chocolate comes from. There are varieties and diversities that have stood the test of time that we don't know. So understanding that and the genetics and the applications of that diversity that is held within the rainforest, maybe it gives us insight into how we save chocolate from the global threats it currently experiences of pests, water, drought, et cetera. The answer is both, I think, as with many things. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, and, but. I think that that kind of answers your question into what chocolate in the future could look like. And 
you know, I think there is a distinction in what we think of as chocolate and this idea of chocolate flavor, right? And a separation or a distance from what cacao is and really understanding that that's the money. All things chocolate are in the plant and kind of getting away from our sort of capitalistic version of chocolate. Right. There's no answer to the question I stated. It's more of just like the hypotheses of what's to come, knowing that we see what's to come. And I think also we can only save ourselves from ourselves. The concerns I have are sometimes in just how far it's reduced into a symbol or a certification or something that just is supposed to suddenly denounce a certain way of working things and call out another as superior and how that can also get much confusion and and disconnect from ultimately what you want people to connect to. Yeah. And I know that you know. I think you can, again, talk about chocolate as this commodity, but when you start talking about chocolate in this really more in-depth ways, then you get to the stories. You get to, here's the person that, you know, came to this epiphany about what they wanted to live and make people happy. So they became a chocolate maker. And I, I mean, just people do crazy things for chocolate, nuts. And so I think that exposing more and more people to, can you get people inside the world of chocolate as you know we know it to really get to the stories. And that's where the fascination becomes. They're like, oh, well, I, I never knew that this had this connection to this house in Brooklyn where they used to, you know, host chocolate parlors and here's the set that does that. I think if you just inspire that kind of curiosity, do you know where your chocolate comes from? Sure. The idea of of having a scientist, a biologist on the podcast is also just to further the line that is between what we adore and we have like created sort of this like fantasy world with, but also then remember that we're all sort of made of these carbon elements that come out of the same place, but produced billions of different variations. And cacao happens to be one of that. It's a marvelous plant. Again, it's a single species that has billion dollar impact across the world. And, you know, it's not easy to make chocolate. It is labor intensive. It is quirky. You really have to want it. I mean, you don't just pick the pod and break it open and there's a chocolate bar inside. That's not how it works. The massive amount of effort it takes to get to chocolate as we know it just is mind boggling in an agricultural way. Like this would never be sustainable if we had to eat chocolate to live, right? We wouldn't be able to do that. It's absolutely insane. Like we're not picking pecans off the tree and maybe right. roasting them. This is not the hunter-gatherer foraging kind of subsistence living. And so I just find that fascinating. We're spending all of this effort, tons of effort, not to mention where we ship it, global carbon, it's astronomical. And in many cases, not great products. Obviously on the fine chocolate side, I see the different investment. I appreciate the nuances, you know, et cetera. But as a commodity, it's amazing how much money we spend on this particular species. That sounds like it could be a really interesting conversation with an economist and an anthropologist about why we continue to jump through these hoops and 
it is fascinating how once certain methods of the machine stopped, we kept it going. And to this day, like we're looking for more opportunities for it and growing it even further. This might be a good place to, to shift into the rise of education as a professor, as a teacher, as someone who can use language to get very complex pieces of information to lay people like myself. You have an interest in people having a, a clear, precise, truthful understanding of, of what is out there. And we know that when anything becomes popular, anything becomes maybe a little bit more trendy, of course, there's a jump to be in it. I would love to hear from you what you've witnessed from starting the class in 2007 and also just being a general, you know, aficionado of chocolate, how you might have seen that evolve or what you think might be needed to improve upon it. I taught this class reading maybe a dozen books. Those dozen books are still, I think, fairly foundational. There have been more. Like there's not yet what I would term a textbook in teaching chocolate. I have interest in that. But, you know, when I think about I'm preparing a class and when am I going to have the students read book-wise, that I don't think has grown as much as I would have liked or that it has the potential to do so. Uh, particularly on the story side, I think there's great potential for highlighting the stories behind chocolate. As to the industry as a whole, there were 10 being the bar makers that I could get in 2007 and talk to and understand their story now. And, you know, every time I turn around, there's a new one. I just had my friends went to Phoenix in Arizona and brought back DNA chocolate. I've seen it. The company's called DNA chocolate. Haven't tasted it. Don't know anything about them. Now I'm going to, you know, take a dive and, and figure that out. So the numbers of opportunities to experiment and taste and investigate are astronomically greater. But with that come some challenges. The ones that, you know, are established in the field that have been around the longest, there's a reason for that. They make better chocolate in general. It's hard to make good chocolate from the beginning of your startup company. There are so many nuances that are affected, again, in the way that you make chocolate, whether it's where you buy your beans, how they were fermented, how you roast them, how you conch them. There's 102 different combinations, and it takes people a while to arrive on that. As much as I love the fine chocolate industry and support all bean to bar makers. I will buy the $10 bar. And if I don't like it, that's okay. You know, if it's not a great chocolate, that's okay with me. I supported this economy or industry, but until all of the chocolates that are at that price point are really good, then I think that educationally, it becomes difficult. All right. To say, People ask me all the time, how much do you spend for a chocolate bar? I'm like, well, what do I want that chocolate bar for? Do I just want to eat it? You know, I just need some chocolate. Well, you know, Divine and Theo and Taza and Cho and, you know, these kind of mid-level companies. Yeah, I'll eat that chocolate. You know, I know where it came from. It's good. And it's, you know, $5 for less than $5. Do I want to sit and think about what I'm eating and... I'm really into something really, you know, fruity or nutty. Well, then I'm going to think about my choices and say, you know, I want this. 
If I see a $25 chocolate bar, am I going to buy that? Probably, because I'm curious, right? Is your average consumer going to buy that $25? No. These questions about what it means to be a consumer of chocolate and fine chocolate have not risen as clearly and cleanly as I would like. There is not good central messaging in chocolate. And, and I think that that's disappointing and frustrating as an educator, because we keep educating on Chocolate 101. We're not pushing the education envelope broadly enough that much further. We're still saying, hey, did you know chocolate comes from a tree? For an educator, that there's a frustrating lack of kind of basic knowledge about chocolate. I would like to see more of that. And this is where I think even, you know, mass market companies could do more. If you just ran even for, you know, a Hershey's ad, where does this chocolate come from? And maybe, you know, Hershey's is investing in the science to make trees grow better. Okay, I, I, you know, I can get around those kinds of ideas and concepts separate from lack of social justice, but in my science hat. As an educator, I think that centralizing some message on chocolate needs to be done. I don't know by whom. There's not a clear leader in that field of public education of chocolate. I mean, there's the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, but you know that's a trade organization. They're representing the businesses. There is not a nature conservancy equivalent for chocolate. And that's what chocolate needs. Carla Martin and her colleagues are inching toward that with the Fine Cacao and Chocolate Institute. But again, their mission is not public education of chocolate. I mean, that's not their main mission. It's hard to do both. If, again, we're talking about someone who might have billions of dollars at their disposal and could create this center, could lead this messaging it would trickle down to all the other people that could slice the information a little bit differently and tell their story. Because just as we have this sort of definition war of like, what is bean to bar? Because everyone starts from the bean. Well, everyone starts from the cacao plant. If that message came across, <laughs> how much easier would all of this There be? really is a chocolate tree. Yes. Chocolate grows on trees. Having that education, straightforward. This is the information that we can agree upon. I think one of the other challenges is that there's so much information now coming out daily that any one group can't cover it all. I get a daily alert from Google about papers published on chocolate. And I, I look at the title and go, okay, I'll read that one, you know, later. I get listservs that, you know, come across, oh, this is what we're reading now. It's impossible for any one consumer, any one person to sort of keep up. It's impossible for me as a scientist with a PhD and access to any article I probably need to keep up. The influx of social media and information that we experience now is just overwhelming. And that's true for chocolate. I don't know how you get through that noise. I have a PhD in biology. I do not, I am not a cacao researcher. I, I did not study the cacao plant in my education. How do I consider myself a chocolate expert is 
I read, I consult with actual scientists doing the work. If I have a question, I look at what I'm reading with a critical eye and saying, oh, well, published here, it's not published here. These people funded it or, you know, these other people were involved. And that's my training as a scientist. It doesn't have anything to do with the subject per se. But I think there are, you know, some basic credentials that educators should probably have, whether that's, and who administers that, I don't know, right? But I read more and more articles that you're like, really, that's just not right. Like, like how can you not get that part right? A lot of it's word choice, a lot of it's ambiguity, a lot of it is not understanding the components of what makes up this, that, or the other. There is not a agreed upon lexicon for everything. And again, if you had a, you know, central chocolate society of education, if I dreamed big, then, you know, maybe you could say, when I talk about chocolate, and we talk about this in my class, if you look at any book, they rarely define chocolate. Like, what is your definition of chocolate? I can tell you my definition of chocolate. It is a edible product from the plant Theobroma cacao. That is my definition of chocolate. Now, does that mean that white chocolate is chocolate? Well, yes, because it has cocoa butter that comes from the tree. Does it taste like chocolate? That's a different question, right? Is it chocolate or does it taste like chocolate? Those are two different questions. And again, I'm defining chocolate from a biologist. It's from the plant, the product from the plant. And then I teach about, okay, well, chocolate's also a livelihood and a passion and a flavor and a paint color and, you know, whatever else you want to tag with this term chocolate. But if you really want to get to what it is, as you said, it goes back to the plant. Right. I hope we never lose track of that. (laughs) It's difficult. But when I first started, there were no podcasts. There was no information. And, you know, products like Weekend Chocolate and the Slow Melt and webinars, I would do a shout out to Dylan Butterball at Manoa Chocolate for his Craft Chocolate TV series, which is just phenomenal. I know it takes a lot of his time and I'm just very personally thankful that it exists because there's really not a lot of resources like that on the educational side where there could be. There's more films now, you know, we're starting to dig a little deeper in the social justice aspects and the importance of origin and what people go through when they have to choose, you know, am I going to grow the plant that harvested for cocaine or am I going to grow the plant that makes chocolate? Those are two very different plants and very different lifestyles, but there's demands on people's livelihoods and, you know, where they live and their socioeconomic status that makes these real life and death situations that people don't associate with chocolate. The change in government. I can't get my product out. The political aspects. It's just, it's it's mind boggling in many ways that chocolate persists through all of these things. Yeah, I agree. To your point of what resources exist now for public access, you know, the majority of those that are available are made by individuals using their own time, their own funds, or looking for those funds otherwise. And it would be really interesting to see how things might change if those, again, were taken on by larger 
entities that could use the the breadth of talent and employees and information that they have to, to share things. Because what's the point of being here if we can't share these concepts or, or our concerns? And as we're sort of creeping towards the precipice, now is the time to have them be out in the open. Well, I joke. I love my job. I, I have a very good gig and my university has been very supportive of this you know, additional scholarly slash passion exploration of teaching and learning that I have journeyed upon. And I'm very comfortable in my professional life and where I am. And I have great students. I joke the next job for me is going to have to be really good to tear me away from my nice and stable life here. But director of, you know, the chocolate museum, director of the chocolate foundation for education. Those are attractive titles to me. So if those uh, positions were to ever open up, then I would definitely think twice. You know, it doesn't matter what I teach. Chocolate has been a very good decision. All of us who have made it this far in the recording would absolutely agree that it is the best decision, if not of one of the best decisions of our lives. And we are privileged to say that and to, you know, to have that absolutely. opportunity to understand it and want to know more and hold that curiosity. and. I'm really grateful, Romy, that we could spend some time today getting to know where you came from, from the plant world into the plant world and uh, around and around we go. Do you have any other themes you'd like to close on or other mentions you'd like to offer? I challenge my students with coming up with a topic or a discipline that I can't connect to. And so far, I haven't come across that. So I think merely that you can take this concept of chocolate and apply it to nearly everything is really a gift, something that I really enjoy doing. We didn't talk about kind of all of the too much of the social justice enterprise and and messaging that needs to be more prominent in terms of the chocolate industry. Those are themes in my class. We didn't talk about neuroscience and the amazing amount of chemicals that are in chocolate that may or may not have influences on the brain. There's so much. If I look at the literature that's coming out, you know, there's concerns about cadmium in the soils of chocolate. That's a big, you know, research area. We talked about genetics. It can be a course or two. I really would like Southwestern to allow me to create a minor or a major. We have interdisciplinary minors in chocolate. I have been considering that. That sounds wonderful. You're a multifaceted person. This is a multidisciplinary approach, and that could be something I think that would catch a lot of people's eye. I'm going to close then on a line from one of my favorite podcasts, which is the Ezra Klein podcast. Mm -hmm. Now it's through the New York Times, but they always ask their guests, what are three books that have influenced you greatly or that you would recommend to listeners? I'm going to focus my books on chocolate. And the first book I would encourage people to get is No Monkeys, No Chocolate, which is a children's book. And it is really beautifully illustrated and just kind of hits on all of the components of the biodiversity of chocolate. I read it to my niece and nephews, and so they have an idea of where chocolate comes from, so getting to that, so that would be my first book. The second one for me has actually been Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because it has really refined my thinking on 
the historical development of chocolate, its relationship with sugar, and also how to consider children's and adult literature and ask critical questions and really, you know, challenge people's assumptions of what that book is about. I have been developing different kind of levels of teaching that book. Besides a biology degree undergraduate, I also have an English degree, so I have this passion for that. And then the third, I would say Maricel's book, New Taste of Chocolate, she really should just be her own publishing house and academic foundation on her own. That book really gave me a sense of the depth of the history and the culture that surrounds chocolate and its influence on, you know, our perceptions of South American civilization and colonialism and all of the things, good and bad, that come along with chocolate in a context that is really easily digestible. The list could go on, but those are great recommendations. Thank you so much. We can find you on Twitter at... My Twitter is at Prof Romy, Professor Romy, Prof Romy. And that's also my website, profromi, P-R-O-F-R-O-M-I dot com. Thank you so much, Romy, for your time today. I really appreciate all the suggestions, the thorough dive into some of those difficult uh, genetics topics that we are always hearing about, but not having much understanding of, and just in general to catch up with you. Totally. I'll do this all day.